0: Well, this is an interesting Sunday with Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving falls each year, if you can follow the calendar logic of this, Thanksgiving falls each year on the fourth Thursday of November, right? Advent, at least for the Western Church, the Western Protestant Church, starts on the fourth Sunday before Christmas. So if you juxtapose the 4th Sunday before Christmas with the 4th Thursday in November, I don't know exactly what the percentage of the time is, I don't know if it's half or a fourth, but there's there's a reasonable percentage of times, of years, when the Sunday following Thanksgiving is the first Sunday of Advent. And this is one of those Sundays, this is one of those years. This means that every few years, perhaps every other year, the calendar of our nation and the calendar of our faith tradition yield a Sunday like this one where two very distinct, but I think correlative or correlating sentiments collide. Our nation and our church sets us at this place where the gratitude that's emphasized by the Thanksgiving holiday and the longing that's underscored by the season of Advent intersect. In other words, on this day, on this Sunday, our thankfulness for what has been nationally intersects with our longing for what will be eternally. Both of these sentiments, interestingly, Both of these sentiments are supposedly understood and fixed. Both of these sentiments are concretized, one by our nation and one by our church. Our gratitude about what has been is supposedly, is supposedly unquestionable. And our perfect expectation of what will be is also at least in the church I grew up in, supposedly unquestionable. Our nation actually tells us a story, and I love our nation and consider myself a patriot. That may not fit everybody's definition of a patriot, but I love uh, my country. I feel, as many people of my generation and younger feel, a stronger allegiance uh, to world citizenry than simply national citizenry but it is not an either or for me. I'm very grateful for our country. But growing up and four miles down a gravel road in a little town in northeast Arkansas and going to a rural school, I was told a story from our past that was, again, fixed and understood. A story of ancestors settling here in the 15th and the 16th centuries. A story of my European ancestors settling here Uh, and it was a story of positive exploration a story of religious freedom a story of warm reception a story of amicable relationships between the settlers and the settlers a story of mutual benefit between the native and the new that was the story that i was told i was looking on history.com earlier this week and uh, i resonated i remembered the story well that was written there that in 1621 the Plymouth colonists and Wampanoag Indians shared an autumn harvest feast that is acknowledged today as one of the first Thanksgiving celebrations in the colonies for more than two centuries days of Thanksgiving were celebrated by individual colonies and states and in 1863 in the midst of the Civil War President Abraham Lincoln proclaimed the National Thanksgiving Day to be held each November Going back, the story that I heard was that in September 1620, a small ship called the Mayflower left Plymouth, England, carrying 102 passengers, an assortment of religious separatists seeking a new home where they could freely practice their faith and other individuals who were lured by the promise of prosperity and land ownership in the new world, because obviously nobody owned the land here before we got here. And the we is a very difficult thing. As one who has a substantial amount of Native American within him, it's a very strange thing. We are all of mixed origin. We should all do a genetic test sometime just to really realize how not monolithic we are as a people. There is Native American and settler in all of us. There is slave and slave owner in all of us, bits and pieces of all. We are a divided lot, can you say amen? But there were those that came here, and after a treacherous and uncomfortable crossing that lasted 66 days, can you imagine? They dropped anchor near the tip of Cape Cod, far north of their intended destination at the mouth of the Hudson River. For a month, they skirted the coast, and after 30 days, the Mayflower crossed Massachusetts Bay where the Pilgrims, as they are commonly known, began the work of establishing a village at Plymouth. Throughout that first brutal winter, most of the colonists remained on board the ship. They didn't even come a land. They suffered from exposure, scurvy, and outbreaks of contagious disease. Less than half of the Mayflower's original 102 passengers and crew lived to see their first New England spring. In March, the remaining settlers moved ashore where they received an astonishing visit, a visit from an Abenaki Indian who greeted them in English. Several days later he returned with another Native American, Squanto, a member of the Paltuxet tribe who had been kidnapped by an English sea captain and sold into slavery before escaping to London and returning to his homeland on an exploratory expedition. Squanto taught the pilgrims who were weakened by malnutrition and illness how to cultivate corn, extract sap from maple trees, catch fish in the rivers, and avoid poisonous plants. He also helped the settlers forge an alliance with the Wampanoag a local tribe which would endure for more than 50 years and tragically remains one of the sole examples of good faith between the natives and the settlers. November 1621, after a successful corn harvest, the governor, the chief came to a place of goodwill and the Thanksgiving story as we know it was established. It wasn't a lot of turkey, it was more like lobster and fish. But the two groups came together, and thus is our story. It's a good story. It's a story that I'm sure, as I just told it, has many, many seeds of truth. But our religious... How do I want to say this? Our national remembrance of that story is a story that to say the least, if we are to be a virtuous people and move forward positively. A story that needs to be reviewed, a story that needs to be reflected upon, a story that needs to not only be retold, but re-understood. With that said, on the other side of this Sunday, on one hand there is thanksgiving, on the other hand there is longing, our religious tradition tells us another story, a story about the future. Our religious tradition tells us about a a day when Eden will be restored, a day when there will be a new heavens and a new earth, a city at the center of it all called the New Jerusalem whose open, open gates are hewn from individual pearls, walls made of jasper, streets paved with gold in this city our faith tradition has told us justice will be complete there will be no pain there will be no sorrow and death will have died the close of our sacred book says that john looked and beheld a new jerusalem a new city like a bride adorned for her bridegroom coming down from heaven and the gates of that city were opened and people were with their god their god was with them and so we would ever be And every tear would be wiped from our eyes. And there would be a stream that ran from the throne of that city down the middle, like a winding blue river, verdant on both sides with the trees of life. And it would be for the healing of our nations. In that place, lion and lamb would lie down together. It would not captivate us, but the gates would be open and the entire world would be ours because after a great conflagration before, there would be a new heavens and a new earth. On this Sunday, our holiday, the season of Advent, paints the picture picture of a perfect future. On this Sunday, our nation paints the picture of a beautiful past. And with our nation on one side idealizing the past and our church on the other idealizing the future, we are left in a very real present to ask ourselves what indeed is our spiritual privilege and prerogative and responsibility. How are we to hold a space in this present moment between these highly edited versions of both past and future? On one hand, there are political pledges to make America great again. And on the other hand, there are prophetic promises that Jesus is coming and everything is going to be all right. And making America great again and Jesus coming to correct all things mingled together into this present hour, making this present hour, this current moment, if we're not careful, little more than the servant of remembering and restoring on one hand and the servant of longing, waiting, and holding the fort on the other. Our story of Thanksgiving, read through a particular lens, idealizes a past that surely we are aware was not the sterilized version often proffered us. I remember it was Horace Greeley, the editor, the great publisher from the uh, middle 18th or 19th century into the early 20th century. A fellow approached him one time at a party and angrily said to him, Greeley? Your magazine is not nearly as good as it used to be. To which Greeley responded, no, it never has been. I told that to my daughter this morning and she looked at me just about like you just did. She said, what did that mean? Listen to it again. Your paper is not nearly as good as it used to be. No, it never has been. I told Nina, what that means is Greeley was simply admitting that to some people who th- look through a delusional lens that the past is somehow the good old days, those sterilized, you remember the past, those good old days? You know, what the, you know what the good old days are? The good old days are the days when you grew up. It's amazing to me, the church that I grew up in was always talking about the good old days and getting back to our faith tradition and, and those good old days, actually, Dave, were 19 centuries after the church was actually born. At some point, I came to realize that for my grandparents, my parents, my great-grandparents, the good old days were those halcyon days when they first experienced God. The good old days arrived from strong experiences, moments in our life that that stick us in time, romantic interludes, the birth of children, religious experience. We all have a tendency. You do realize one of these days there are going to be a bunch of little old ladies named Nicole and Tiffany sitting around in churches saying, I just missed the days when our songs were up on the screens, right? And they're also going to all have... Tattoos that were once butterflies on their back that have dropped to vultures on their behind. <laughs> the good old days, right? Your paper's not nearly as good. Your church is not nearly as good. Education's not nearly as good. No, it never has been. That's why we're going to have to make this great like it used to be. Great like when there was no anesthetic when you got your wisdom teeth pulled. Great like my grandmother who had her first 11 children at home and the average weight of them was 12 pounds. She was five foot, 130 pounds. Good old days. Because she had gestational diabetes and there was no prenatal care. Every baby two weeks past term on a glucose IV in her belly. Good old days, right? Some Native Americans and others take issue with how the Thanksgiving story is presented in the American public, and especially to school children. In their view, the traditional narrative paints a deceptively sunny portrait of relations between the pilgrims and the Wapanoag people, masking the long and bloody history of conflict between Native Americans and European settlers that resulted in the deaths of millions. Since 1970, protesters have gathered on the day designated as Thanksgiving at the top of Coles Hill, which overlooks Plymouth Rock, to commemorate a national day of mourning. Similar events are held in other parts of the country. That postscript at the end, Steve, of a long narrative in history.com about our settling at Plymouth. Frederick Buechner said in his wonderful book, Telling Secrets, it is important to tell at least from time to time the secret of who we truly and fully are, even if we tell and admit it only to ourselves. Because otherwise we run the risk of losing track of who we truly and fully are and little by little come to accept instead the highly edited version which we put forth and hope that the world will find it more acceptable than the real thing. Wow. It's important to tell our secrets too because it makes it easier that way to see where we have been in our lives and where we're going. It also makes it easier for other people to tell us a secret or two of their own and exchanges like that have a lot to do with what being a family is all about and what being human is all about. Hopefully for our country's sake what being American is all about. Finally, I suspect that it is by entering that that deep place inside of us where our secrets are kept, that we come perhaps closer than we do anywhere else to the one who, whether we realize it or not, is of all our secrets the most telling and the most precious we have to tell. So here on this unusual Sunday, with thanksgiving on one side and longing on the other, on this Sunday between political pledges and prophetic promises, On this Sunday, we are reading a story of Thanksgiving and we must ask ourselves, are we reading that story through a particular lens, a lens we have chosen, a lens that perhaps we don't even see, a lens that others objectively can see but we can't see because we don't see the lens, we see through the lens. That's the problem with lenses, isn't it? We don't see our lenses. We see through them. Other people can see. It's like that story of the poor kid that when he was sleeping in his college uh, dormitory house, they put Limburger cheese in his mustache, and he woke up and said, Man, this place stinks. By the time he got outside, he said, blankety-blank, the whole world stinks. The reality was it was just his upper lip, right? Lenses, filters through which we see things. In terms of our nation, that's not really my story today. Um, but the reality, the reality of our nation and how we got here probably rests somewhere between the Pollyannic children's tale that we grew up with and the accusations of demonic invasion from the other side. Either way, what, what we remember about our past is formative. But even more, what we choose to remember about our past is um, increasingly, infinitely more important. What we choose to remember about our past or how we choose to remember our past speaks to our maturity of soul. We either bury our head in in, in the sand or we open our eyes and say we want to know the truth. The truth is more valuable than my good feelings what we remember about our past is formative how we remember our past speaks to our enlightenment and how we respond to our past perhaps above all of this indicates our virtue or frankly our uh, the lack thereof the crisis at Standing Rock in North Dakota is a complex one and I choose not to be too political in the face of that complexity but the crisis at Standing Rock this Thanksgiving season should at least cause our Thanksgiving reflection to be a bit more careful and reflective. And then there's Advent's longing for a future utopia on the other side of my heart this morning. There's Advent's longing for a perfect world, a promise of a messianic return to make all things new. On one side, there's... Plymouth Rocks, and Native Americans, and beads, and lobster for turkey. And on the other side, there is this promise filled with dispensationalism, millennial reigns, lions lying down with lambs, children playing around the holes of poisonous snakes and not being bitten. Raptures and Armageddon's and apocalyptic visions of demon hordes and angelic armies clashing on Temporal soil a messiah returning on a white horse Dead people being raised to join living people in the clouds to fly off like Superman to a world beyond Tribulations marriage suppers of the lamb Antichrist Marks of the beast that used to scare me to death. I I remember years ago putting the first little chip inside our dog so if it ever got lost we could find it. I knew that the good news was if our dog ever got lost we could find it. But I also knew that it very likely had just taken the mark of the beast and was not going to make the rapture. tribulations, Antichrist, final judgments, eternal separation of horror and splendor. This is the stuff of Advent. This is the stuff of promise, I was told. A future where not only will America be great again, but the whole world will be great for the first time since a primordial couple were convinced to eat a forbidden fruit by a talking snake. Costing all of us a perfect world. Here we sit, as hopefully maturing spiritual beings, religious, religious and nationalistic, positioned between two, positioned between two stories, two stories that mix fairy tale and reality, and we are immature. ...to swallow either the fairy tale or to spit it out completely. We are immature to not notice the strains of mythology and poetic license... ...and literary science with the equally valuable strains of spiritual truth... ...and transformative soul material. Here we sit between two realities... And the point is today that we must mature beyond idealizing our past as well as our future. We must not get lost in the immature idealizing of either, lest we lose the hope of the present where we actually live. To that end, I want to read a good word from a new friend of mine, the incredibly brilliant public theologian and author, Diana Butler Bast. Some of our staff and members of the church got to see Diana at Vanderbilt a few days ago. Her writing about Christianity and faith has impacted me. She's in the top five of people who have impacted me in the last five years. She is indeed a friend of this church. Uh, When our church began inclusion in January of last year, and I, I was in a particularly difficult time at that time as well, I didn't even know who this famous... I only knew this woman as a famous writer and a brilliant public theologian, one of our best, one of our top three, I really feel, in the country in terms of public theologians. And without her even knowing me, she knew what we was going through, and she literally put out to her entire host of friends and followers what was happening at our church. And in the weeks that followed, I received over 500 emails and messages from theologians and college presidents and pastors and rectors and priests and lay people from around this country just at her behest and out of that she and I have become friends a few years ago she wrote this article that was in Huffington Post about Advent and she captures well what I wanted to say today For many of us raised with Christian apocalyptic books like The Late Great Planet Earth. Does anybody know what The Late Great Planet... Anybody remember Hal Lindsey? Raise your hands. Oh, man. Woo! The Late Great Planet Earth. For those that just raised their hands, you know, in the late 60s and 70s and through the 80s, Hal Lindsey within the evangelical world had all of us, long before Y2K, it was Y2 1977 and Jesus was coming and how had us convinced for many of us raised with christian apocalyptic books like the late great planet earth or the left behind series surely left behind series 60 million copies i grew up all my life on rapture alerts anybody know what i mean by rapture alert come in the house mom was gone and i just knew the big one had taken place i'd like fred sanford (laughs) Elizabeth, I'm coming to you. The big one's taking place. Mama's gone to heaven and I'm going to hell. Dead gummit. (laughs) Images of world's end are worrisome for people like us. Progressive Christians shy away from preaching from texts like those found in Luke 21, which was the lectionary text for that year. And it was all about the coming of Jesus and the fear that would grip the hearts of people. Over the last 30 years, we've seen end times, end times fears manipulated into the powerful political movement of a Christian American right. Complete with its careless disregard for the planet, the poor and peace. Those of us more attracted to the Jesus teachings in the Beatitudes or his prophetic politics may find Luke's end times vision a little hard to take. We've had too much experience with a callous form of faith that does not seek to redeem the world and only wishes to escape it. Read that again. Some of us have had too much experience with a callous form of faith that does not seek to redeem the world but only wishes to escape it. Before what we know as end times Christianity, well, perhaps we know little of that time. Evangelical faith has been secured has been made fixed in form by this zeitgeist, this worldview of Jesus' soon return. Part of the problem with end times theology is that Western people see time as a line. We think in terms of beginning, middle and end. Thus to consider the end times is to anticipate the end of the world as we know it. A universal devastation on the scale of the Mayan calendar ending in 2012 when history will cease to be. But the biblical text of Advent point in another more mysterious direction that time is not a line. Surely, science and relativity has taught us that in the 20th century. Now that we're in the 21st church, surely the church will begin to catch up to this. Time is not a linear line, but is held in the being of God. Indeed, time is timeless. Our kids are knowing this. The senior highs that are in here now, they know this. I sat at Barnes & Noble the other night with my 18-year-old, who's a good, above-average kid. He's not a genius, but he's just a good, smart kid. And he sat with a book about astrophysics because Neil deGrasse Tyson is his hero. And he launched into an explanation to me that 13.7 billion years ago the entire universe as we know it was compressed into a space the size of an electron and he said in one ten millionth of a second it erupted. Because of some cataclysm that we don't understand, but it was catalyzed to erupt. And that little bitty space, the size of an electron, in one ten millionth of a second expanded in trillions of light years' distance to either side. One ten millionth of a second, that little space erupted into a material universe comprised equally of dark matter and matter. And that dark matter and matter in a space of a period of time that he explained to me was supposed to correlate and yield a complete yield or, or yield a complete product of dark energy. And yet our universe comprised of 200 trillion galaxies, we just figured out, we thought it was 400 billion but our telescope just got better and we realized that it's not 400 billion galaxies, it's two trillion galaxies, of which our Milky Way is an average size galaxy and our Milky Way has 400 to 500 billion stars in it, one of the average size stars of those four to 500 billion stars that are in our galaxy, the Milky Way that is one of two trillion galaxies in our universe, my 18-year-old son said. As Neil deGrasse Tyson and others are doing the mathematical work that it takes to understand how much matter, not dark matter or antimatter, but matter is in this universe, they are finding that in terms of the original creation, what we know as the material universe is only about 4% of that combined dark matter and matter. The rest is dark energy, and that dark energy is all around us. And that dark energy cannot be described. We simply know that we are not it, but it is all around us. And it may very well be that in that place, not spatial, it's not even around us. That's a preposition. It's beyond space, but it's here, and yet it's not here. And that may be where other beings and forms of life exist. And maybe a precocious scientist, religionist like Jesus knew that, Buck, when he said the kingdom of God is not linear and it's not spatial, why would we hold on to highly bred, edited versions of our past? Why would we hold on to fanciful versions of our future when the reality is so much better, more mystical and real? Stan said that the physicists are scratching their head because what we know is the material universe, you know, those 200 trillion galaxies and Our galaxy has this one little sun with a solar system around it that's billions of miles across, and there are many suns, stars within our galaxy that are bigger than our entire solar system. And yet when you compress, when you add up all of the material, the raw material of the universe, it comprises about 4% of all that originally existed. The other 96% is in dark energy where the 4% should be, but they can't understand why this 4% that we're living in still exists. my 18-year-old son said. (laughs) And we're teaching them what in Sunday school? We're teaching them what in fifth grade about our history? And Stan said, they can't figure out why this 4% still exists because it should have completely yielded to dark energy. And he looked at me and he said, Dad, do you think that that is the grace of God that is holding this 4% for our way of being? I said, well, that's a lot of space in the universe for God to be holding for one little species of people down here on an outcropping called Earth. The biblical text of Advent point in another more mysterious direction that time is not a line rather time is held in the being of God. Time is not a line, time is held in the being of God. Indeed, time is actually timeless. Think about it for just a moment, what do the divisions past, present and future really mean? When does the present slip to the past? When does the future actually arrive? When is the now of the present? Isn't time much more of a wonder, a spiritual or philosophical question than a line? If we enter the advent journey with a different perspective on time, the apocalyptic text speaks afresh. Indeed, the words of the liturgical prayer weekly reminds us of the mystery of God's redemptive time. Jesus has come. Jesus comes. Jesus will come again. This is the dance of time. Grace-filled steps that enact God's vision that the end times are actually all times. And that all times are actually the end times. And as Eliot said, in my beginning is my end, and in my end is my beginning in the spirit of times enfolded in time we walk through advent jesus has been born but we act as if we're still waiting christ will return yet christ has already come what words better describe our world than those of luke this was the text for the lectionary this is the first week of advent people will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world yes These are not words of some far off moment in time. They are words of now. Our cities and churches are full of people who are afraid, afraid of loss, afraid of job loss, afraid of income loss, afraid of healthcare, of decency, of safety, of change, of pluralism, of, of, of. The list of fears is nearly endless, yet be honest. Has there ever really been a time in human history when we've not been filled with such fears? Luke's words are also the words of all of yesterdays. No wonder the Apostle Paul, a scant three decades after Jesus' resurrection, taught the church vehemently that Jesus was coming then. Hal Lindsey did not believe it more than the Apostle Paul. Luke's words are also the words of all of our yesterdays. We may imagine that the past was better, safer, cleaner, or more stable, but that is not the case. We are a fragile lot. Our stories are not as clean as we fancy them to be. We humans, our history is roiled with fear and the stupid things that we humans do when we are afraid. And sadly enough, they are probably the words of many of humanity's tomorrows. Apocalyptic theology does not augur escape. Rather, it provides a profoundly realistic view of history, all of history, a view that should plunge us more deeply into the shalom of God and the world. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, said to a group of people who could see those things all around them, when you see these things, do not cower in fear, for your transformation is drawing near. Even Jesus told them that Jesus' coming was near. And then he left them. And then he came again, and then he left them. And he came again in spirit, calling us the body of Christ, and yet somehow the earliest interpreters missed that coming, transferring it to an apocalyptic vision of a white horse and a sword. Advent teaches us that in the darkest places of human oppression, in the pain of hunger and political distress, that God's reign is among us. Do not be caught off guard, Jesus warned, by the fear-filled tides of history, but be mindful, praying for strength, that you may escape the fears that roil the earth, and above all, when you see that hour approaching, that you might stand with God. So, I just wanted to say this morning, and I'll leave you to do the reflections this week, Coming out of a holiday where I am called to reflect on a past that I am not completely sure about with great and pure gratitude. And rolling into a season of candle lighting where I am supposed to project to the promise, unequivocal promise of a world that will be made right, (coughs) perfectly right, children will have completely clean water and there will be no pediatric burn units oncology units where young fathers won't fall off of ladders while they're putting up Christmas lights for their children and die somewhere between these two realities I am left to sift through what is myth and what is truth, what is truth and what is myth. But ultimately the spiritual work is to bring that reflection back to the present hour. In a world filled with fear. I am called to bring hope. Not by idealizing either the past or the future but the hope of human substance, the hope of divine gift that is resident inside of us. The hope for a present hour, knowing that somewhere in this present hour is the mystery of all time. Somewhere in this present hour, for what is the present hour? Because the statement that I just spoke is now the past. The hand motion that I just made is gone and yet we live behind our cameras so desperately trying to capture our past that we scarcely come out from behind them to enjoy the gift of God here and now. So in this season of Advent, coming from this season of Thanksgiving, I would encourage you to take the light of our Advent candle and to allow it to shine deep into the heart, not only of this nation and not only of our church, but into the light of your own soul. And to ask yourself, how now shall I live? And if there be any consolation in Christ, how does that consolation apply here? I doubt that we will settle the issue of eminent domain and native territory through the Standing Rock crisis. But as hearts break, as commerce continues, may our warm blankets go around their dark shoulders. May the alcoholism that that is rife in their reservations as they wrestle somewhere between victimization, cruelty, neglect, and their own grievous mistakes, an admixture so strange that only the divine can possibly tease them out, may in this present hour, from Thanksgiving and into Advent we roll, may in this present hour, we simply make it our call today to be good to one another. For as Aslan the lion said to Diggory at the end of the Narnia tale, there is enough pain in the world Let us be good to one another. Tomorrow will have enough trouble to sustain itself, Jesus said. May we not pay interest on a loan we haven't taken out. And whatever of Jesus there is to bring, may we bring it from the past and the future into this present hour. Christ have mercy on us all. Can you say amen? amen? To that end we pray. As we stand here juxtaposed between national holidays and church holy days. May we find the strength of present resurrection as we continue to wait on a future one and cling to a past one. May whatever the past resurrection of that one called Jesus was and may whatever the future resurrection of our grandmas and grandpas be, May we rise today, sweet Christ, to walk in newness of life as we tease out our responsibility for past atrocities and mingle them with our gratitude with past beauties. May we not wait on a marauding king to make all things right, but may we bring that gentle lamb attendant to this world where there is so much pain we are thankful and we are longing may those two energies make a better today we pray and all of god's people said a good and hearty amen now let us be good to one another go in god's grace and enjoy your families today